Definitely. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Nadia Dufilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vander. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Azzarello. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 109. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Joe. No, this is Donovan. <laughs> and I'm Joe, and this is Stella. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and Joe is taking a, uh absence from this episode... Um, we, he will obviously be back next episode, but he is taking this episode off, so we will work without him. We do have four books to cover, and we have absolutely no news to cover, so this should be a rather short episode since we are minus Joe and we have no comic news. So, without further ado, let's get straight into our books. And the very first book we'll be covering is Batman the Dark Knight number 16. Don't let me find you out here again. We're trying to help you. I don't need help. Not my diagnosis. Batman the Dark Knight number 16, written by Greg Hurwitz, art by Ethan Van Skyver. The issue starts off with Batman in the Batcave, jumping into the Batplane and heading towards Gotham City to investigate a situation where a number of people are being kidnapped and either reappearing dead or not reappearing at all. He is on the way to a a sweatshop that has been overtaken by a bunch of thugs who are actually in the process of kidnapping people as it is. And as Batman approaches in the Batplane, they pull out some RPGs and shoot down the Batplane. As the Batplane goes down, we see a little boy with a ray gun sitting in his apartment shooting the ray gun, and in the background we see the the explosion of the Batplane hitting the ground. Meanwhile, back at the scene, Batman pops out of the Batplane, takes out numerous thugs, and as the thugs try to retreat, Batman jumps back in the Batplane and chases them down the street in the Batplane. As Batman uses the various different devices, he pulls the doors and blows a hole through the van, saves one of the females who are in one of the vans, and has a odd romantic exchange with the female. <laughs> we then continue to see Bruce Wayne uh, get back to Wayne Manor, where he runs into Natalia. And Natalia is um, kind of questioning where Bruce has been. He has some bruises and swelling on his face. He insists that he got into a car crash because of the mist, and he hit a guardrail. Um, she then proceeds to tell him for multiple, multiple panels that are laid out over piano keys about she's not stupid. People think she might be dumb because she's so beautiful, but she's very smart and she knows who he is. After he says, no, you don't know who I am, she says, um, you, if you walk out right now, I am I can't take this anymore. So what does he do? Bruce Wayne does not disappoint and he walks out of the room. Uh, we then cut to the Iceberg Gown for the 50th gazillionth cameo from the Penguin in the New 52, where Batman approaches Penguin and claims that he's in charge of the kidnappings, after Penguin explains that he's not the only one in town who's partial to haberdashery, Batman takes off. He then goes, we then cut to the Wild Hair Nightclub, where 
we see the Mad Hatter telling Tweedledee and Tweedledum to grab somebody because that person is perfect for a specific part. We then see Batman at the crime scene, who and he picks up a wig, only to find that the wig has a mind control device inside of it, leading him to believe that it is in fact the Mad Hatter. We then cut back to the Wild Hair nightclub, where the man who was told, who was brought to Mad Hatter by Tweedledee and Tweedledum, is told to read some lines and put on a coat. After he reads the lines, he fails at delivering the lines to Mad Hatter's uh, liking, and he gets shot in the head. We then see Mad Hatter tell Tweedledee and Tweedledum to clean up the mess. We see another gentleman approach Mad Hatter and say, some people uh, are starting to think that it's pure madness around here, and we're just trying to figure out what's the point. Mad Hatter tells his Tweedledee and Tweedledum to grab his ladder. He then he then they he then places it in front of the man, gets right up into his eyes, looks his lazy eye dead into the man's eyes, and then pounces on him, shoving his thumbs into his eye sockets. We then see Mad Hatter give his lazy eye, or possibly his normal eye, the evil eye to the other people in the room, and next up, Batman chasing madness. Alright, so this was the first issue that Ethan Van Skyver was on, and Greg Hurwitz's new story arc since the Scarecrow story arc that he started way back in June is has, has completed. Uh, but let's first talk about this interpretation of the Mad Hatter and what you think of the Mad Hatter. Do we think that the Mad Hatter is... Is this change for the better or change for the worse? I think that uh, Mad Hatter's appearances are kind of sporadic, so... Mostly, he's typically the same in here. He's, he's, he has sort of the same gimmick, although they're using Tweedledee and Tweedledum again, uh, by a previous Dark Knight issue. Obviously, the change here, he seems a lot more homicidal, has this bulging, uh, lazy eye. His, his, <laughs> his right eye is lazy, which is a coincidence to me because... <laughs> I don't want to say this again. I've, I've, I've recently found myself rather, not fascinated, but intrigued by the idea of lazy eyes and i've been finding myself googling people with lazy eyes many a night <laughs> early into the morning um but that's that's just a, a, a cosmic coincidence that, that had found donovan um i don't think i'm going to uh, surprise anybody by saying that i don't really care for the idea that the penguin not the penguin god not the penguin the mad hatter is a lot more homicidal and a lot more insane in this way i've always kind of liked the mad hatter he's always been one of my uh, favorite uh, Batman villains because he's really distinct. He has a real focused gimmick, and I think that like it, it doesn't really, you know, work well for. I mean, it works well for a Batman villain. I should, I should say, I'm not saying it doesn't work well, but to me, one of the appeals of the Batman villains is that like they all have these like really weird, uh, various, uh, different psychosis, and I think now, especially with the New Fifty Two, it's like the aim is to make them more serious by making them a lot more just violent. And I don't think that I don't think that really works as a uh, I don't I don't think that works dramatically. I think the Mad Hatter has always had sort of an edge in terms of mind control. There's always a sort of pedophile pedophile sort of uh, subtext with him in terms of like you know kidnapping young girls and um, make turning them into Alice's and stuff over mind control. But it was never expanded upon that. And I think that was enough threat. I think he can be a fun villain. I think he'd be a threatening villain. But you don't have to just make him a killer. You don't have to make some guy who just like you know has this. Um, low, 
uh, not enough patience and just kills people randomly. That just it's out of character, first of all. And I know that you know the the immediate response says, "Well, let's do fifty two so that he, it is in character." Fuck you. <laughs> I don't know, okay. But like, I mean, just really, I, I don't see what the, I don't see the point. I mean, I don't I don't see what makes this actually inherently in- interesting. We have enough serial killers that pose as Batman villains, and I don't think that this is really something which is interesting. It's just it's it's really annoying to me because it relies on a really basic set of evil that. Just you know, it differentiates character in a way that doesn't really endear me to read more about him than I already than I used to. It takes a lot of goodwill away from me, away the character from me. Yeah, I, I think that there is something missing from this uh, particular characterization. I think that he is uh, too violent for the character. I mean, I don't know the the Mad Hatter that I. I've always sort of read and watched has not been one to weep at somebody and start squeezing their eyeballs through their head. And I mean, you can have like, you know, darker villains, which we've, we've seen before, but I feel like all these new retakes on villains that we've seen in the new 52 have been really dark and really violent. And they've just all taken that sort of turn. And I think that Batman, what's fun about some of Batman's rogues, because he's, he's got some great villains, is that there are some sort of fun ones that Batman doesn't really, I mean, they may get him a little bit in the beginning, but Batman's always able to outshine them. And then in the end, he can, you know, sort of stand back and have a little chuckle. And those are sort of, you know, the C-listers like Killer Moth or the Cavalier. And, and I think Mad Hatter was one of those because he was just like a kooky guy rather than a, a, a huge threat. And I think we've gone from that. And now like the kooky flavor is sort of gone and, and the fun with him. And so that's sad. Another thing that I really miss is the fact that, I mean, the Mad Hatter had this huge devotion to Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. There was a purpose for him trying to find his Alice. And he used to speak consistently, I mean, not all the time in all phrases like Kate's sister did in uh, Detective Comics, but he always used to have many phrases that were directly taken from that book. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he says anything in this entire issue from... Alice in Wonderland, and I think that that is that's pretty shocking, right there. Um, were you going to say something? Were you going to no, no correction needed. Oh, okay. So, so that's just a little sad because that's part of who he is. So, I think there's a little bit lost just having this crazy, violent character. That I mean, hey man, it's the Joker. Basically, he's crazy and he's violent. And Scarecrow, he wasn't as violent, but you know. Um, Freeze wasn't as, but there, it's just like dark. Each of the characters that pop out are dark, 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 and I kind of wish we could have some, like a lighter character for Batman. Yeah, my thoughts on this was, you know, I, I like Ethan Van Skyver's take on the Mad Hatter, but I do agree that it is a little bit darker than what we, we what we've seen in the past. Um, one of the more recent stories that actually involved the Mad Hatter. Um, was in, of course, I'm not going to be able to remember the issue, but I, I remember the cover very vividly, and it's it was like a spiral, an orange and yellow spiral, and it had the Mad Hatter in it. He was, it was a coffee company that he was working with. and I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. I can't oh, yeah. It. <clears throat> it was a decent story, and, you know, he wasn't, you know, as uh, trivial and as, um, frivolous is some of the characters that, you know, have also somehow emerged from the Silver Age, but at the same point, 
um, it was a good story, and they they used the the mind tech the mind control technology very well, and it made sense in the way they did it. Here, it just feels as if, like Don said, we we have another serial killer that Batman has to deal with. Um, besides the 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 gimmick that a lot of these characters have, there's very much there's very little that actually differentiates them from another villain. Um, Freeze has, you know, the, the cold and the Mad Hatter, okay, so he has hats. As the, really the only gimmick that we saw in this was that he has Tweedledee and Tweedledum as his henchmen still, and that he's making everybody wear hats. Um, but besides that, there, there really was not a whole lot. Like Sella said, there wasn't any kind of quotes from Alice in Wonderland or any of Lewis Carroll's work which is kind of a downfall because I think that was one of the, the better things about the character is, you know, they, they made it seem as if, you know, this is why he's like this. And, you know, the, there's no, there's no mention of Alice at all, but that's, you know, I, I'll give it time. Um, to, to me, it just feels as if the story was, you know, a very, 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 it was like a glimpse of what is to come and a very, very small glimpse at, at that. So, um, for, for the story itself, I think, I think I like the look of Mad Hatter, but he's definitely darker, but that's because he's written darker. Another thing I was going to, I just thought about is that Mad Hatter's typical, like, the kind of, you know, clue that Mad Hatter is involved in a crime is that he does use mind control through wigs and through hats. Why didn't he just have people wear the hats that would make the mind control? I mean, he, he, he's kidnapping his people to pretend to be a certain role and then kills them. Uh, he's always just had to be mind controlled. I mean, think back to like um, Nightfall, where Film Freak and a bunch of other like hoods uh, showed, showed up to a, an invitation and to some sort of party, and he did threaten them with the guy. He said, "Put on the hood, put on the hats right now." And when they did it, they would be, they would be you know his willing slaves. He did it in the animated series. I mean, that, that's, that's that's what he does. That's what he does. He has people work through him through mind control. Why does he need to like you know step on a ladder and intimidate them that way, <laughs> like? That doesn't actually really make a lot of sense. That actually wastes wastes a lot of time, and I think that honestly, that that that's the whole point. Batman's involved in this case in the first place because people are dying. If he really wanted to have people work for him and you know not attract attention, why doesn't he do what he's always done? It seems like this is a change that is solely made to make him more violent, but it actually doesn't make any sense for the character because it makes him look really stupid if, if he's going to leave this this wide of a trail and basically ignore something that would be very useful to his MO. Alright, so then the other topic I'd like to talk about is Ethan Van Skyver's work. So this is the first time we've seen Ethan Van Skyver in a Batman book in quite some time. Honestly, uh, no one here except for myself was actually on the podcast the last time Van Skyver was actually working on a book, which was way back in, I want to say like 2009 was the last time he worked on a Batman book. Um, so, so the big thing is, what do you think of Ethan Van Skyver's work? Do you think it's complementing Greg Hurwitz's writing style, or do you think it's actually kind of, kind of disrupting his writing style? I think that, um, I think that Greg, uh, Greg, Ethan Van Skyver's a good artist. I've liked him ever since he kind of became a superstar. Uh, I know he's worked on DC for a while, and I know he originally did artwork for Impulse at one point, but he was really big with, um, Green Lantern in 2004. I think he works, his art works well on Batman himself. I don't know so much about a Batman artist because a Batman artist kind of has to encompass a lot of things in the characters and settings to kind of really fit the tone of the comic. 
But I think, I think he's a good artist enough that he makes Batman look really cool. Like, for instance, I really love how he draws Bruce's cowl. I, I love that shot where he finds the wig and we see, like, your really elongated ears and, and dented eyebrows. I think it's really cool. And his cape looks really nice and gothic as well. Um, I don't know how long this is, I don't know how long this, uh, is gonna last, because I think that after a while his art does tend to wear you out a bit because it's so detailed heavy. Um, it's sort of like, again, I'm not a big reader of Green Lantern, but I followed it, uh, you know, irregularly to where when, when Nathan Van Skyver was on, uh, Green Lantern, then he was replaced by Ivan Reese. Ivan Reese has a lot more of a, uh, a, I don't want to say general, but a more appealing style in that it's slightly less detailed, a lot more, uh, a lot more of an optimistic sort of style. I think Ethan Van Skyver's style tends to rely a lot on um, detail and uh, really slick penciling and rendering. And it's really good artwork. I don't want to say it's not, it's not bad artwork, but I question how long it'll be. As I'm sure it's, it's time-intensive, for one thing. And all I'm saying is, I really is I'm wondering how long uh, it'll be before we, we kind of want to see another artist. I'm not saying it's bad, but it is a type of artwork where you can only take so much of it uh, at once. I think that Van Skyver's work, I, I enjoy his work, honestly. I think that it's, it's, it's really, he does a really nice job. He, he, he's a very good artist, and he knows what to draw, and he draws a lot of detail, and I like the detail when it comes to the art. Um, the, the biggest thing is, like Don said, I, I wonder how long it's going to last before we kind of get tired of the art. Um, I don't see myself getting tired of the art as as quickly as maybe some others because I enjoy it. But I think the big thing is, because his artwork is so detailed, I have to wonder also how long it's going to be before we might need a fill-in artist, which Ben Skyver has been pretty good about uh, when he's on books not needing fill-in artists. Uh, when he was working on Green Lan- the Green Lantern stuff and things like that, he didn't really need fill-in artists. But I just, I'm hoping that... He, that you know something doesn't come up where he's going to need one because I don't think that there's very many artists that can copy his styles like some of the other books that we've seen where you know we have a fill-in artist every other month because <clears throat> those artists I feel as if the the fill-in artists that come in to do art they kind of try to mimic the art style and in some cases it's very close um, if not almost unrecognizable that it's the, a different artist. Um, the, the one thing I do like about Van Skyver's artwork as well is that I don't know if the piano keys, for example, were actually in the script or if that was something that he decided to do when he was uh, forming out the panels. But that was a really cool aspect that if we compare it to everything that happened back in Greg Hurwitz's last story arc, nothing like that really happened as far as the panel composition. So I have to wonder if that was uh, something that Ethan Van Skyver came up with compared to it being dictated in the script from Greg Hurwitz. Um, if Van Skyver did in fact come up with that, I think that was really cool and very interesting. Quite honestly, the, the entire sequence went too long. I don't give too, I don't give a rat's rear end about the Natalia chick, and I don't understand why we keep focusing on her so much, other than just to foreshadow some horrible event that is going to involve her. But for the most part. Because it was drawn in an interesting way with the piano keys, it, it went a little bit faster and it didn't seem as if it went on forever like it could have because it's such a boring section of this book. <laughs> so overall, Batman the Dark Knight number 16, I'm going to give a total of 4 out of 5 Batarangs. 
I liked pretty much everything except for the the depiction of Matt Hatter, which I don't know if it was a bad thing, but it was just something I didn't like personally. In my reviews, mainly based on enjoyment, so I'll give it three and a half out of five batterings. And just so you know, a little social tidbit from Stella, trying to change the world one tidbit at a time. Um, if you ever encounter someone with a lazy eye, do not be, you know, concerned about which eye to look at. Just look at their nose, because you can't tell which eye you're looking at. Uh, 2.5 out of 5 batterings for me. Well, you know, you can look real quickly, look away, and then, like, you know, remember which eye is That brings a lot of attention to your shifting eyes, though. Not if you're wearing sunglasses. Oh, that's true. All right, and over on the website, Micah gave the issue a total of four out of five bad rings, and Joe emailed his his ratings in, and he gave it a four and a half out of five bad rings. So that is going to give Batman the Dark Knight number 16 a total of three and a half out of five bad rings. Let's move into our next book, Nightwing number 16. I could definitely get into the superhero gig. Nightwing number 16, Curtain Call. Uh, this issue picks up where last left off. Last issue, Dick Grayson witnessed the tragic death of his, um, who knows what to call her, Raya, uh, but the hands of the Joker, and he's tracking the Joker down to Haley's Circus where he's invited for a quote-unquote party, ignoring an incoming call from Sonya Branch, his also, who knows what to call her. Uh, he encounters the Joker uh, into the uh, Haley Circus Stadium where he meets hundreds of, or at least a hundred uh, pack of skeletons all former members of the Haley Circus for, throughout the years, which Joker has dug up and dressed up just to freak him out. Rather ghoulish. This irritates Nightwing to the point of abject anger and disgust. So he attacks Joker head-on, but is taken aback by lots of Joker's hallucinogenic gas, which is also explosive gas. Dick is blown out of the tent and takes on even more explosions as I, as I go through the comic book, and starts to hallucinate the uh, ghostly images of Raya and Jimmy, both still Jokerized, with Raya wearing his Nightwing costume. This sends Dick into a rage, and he attacks the Joker, much like in The Last Laugh, and beats him rather mercilessly until he is uh, caught back by uh, the remaining members of Haley's Circus, who, the ones who are still alive, and the ones he uh, urged to leave Gotham City, including the little girl. They're all Jokerized, so they're all still alive, but they probably will die soon. And because he's pleading with them to try to fight off the Joker toxin, he is uh, knocked out. So Joker drives him to a nearby cave, says uh, it uh, shows the um, the dinner plate, which he's shown every other character. He's shown Batgirl and Damien and Tim and uh, Jason, and says this is too good to miss. This story will be concluded in Batman number 17. Nightwing number 16. This issue um, is a good conclusion, or at least a good continuation from last issue. I did think of a, little, a few things uh, when I was reading it, though. I had um, listened to Kyle Higgins be interviewed, uh, Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman podcast, and he talked about how he sees Dick Grayson, how he first got into Dick Grayson, and how he's read Dick Grayson's uh, stories as Nightwing, and how he really wants to define Dick Grayson as Nightwing and not just the former Robin. So it made me kind of take a second look at how he characterized Dick. And in this issue... Um, I like Kyle Higgins' writing overall, but I do think that he has a tendency to write Nightwing as a bit more of a fresher, more greener crime fighter. Maybe it's because of the New 52 and Nightwing is younger, but I felt that, excuse me, I felt that Nightwing was a bit too, uh, I thought he was beaten a bit too easy in this issue. Maybe it's me, because it, it is, these are really heavy circumstances he's going up against with, you know, the Haley Circus basically attacking him. 
But I thought that, I don't know, aside from the fact that him he beat up the Joker a little bit in the issue, I thought that he was sort of taken out. I thought someone who used to be Bat- Batman for a little bit of a time, I would imagine would put a, a more of a fight. And I think that is a, sort of indicative to Hickens' writing of Nightwing's so far in this run. Um, I, I just think that Nightwing should be a bit more of a capable fighter or a capable more crime fighter. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this before. I probably have. But uh, what do you guys think? Do you think that Nightwing was portrayed well here, or do you think that uh, what I have to say has some merit to it? Well, I'll say that I don't think that this issue was as good as the last issue. I thought the the last issue was really good, and this issue it just feels like we're using everything that Kyle Higgins has written up to this point is being erased and prepped for a completely different direction starting next month, based off this one issue. Um, we we how uh, it took seventeen issues for him to uh, it was seventeen issues that he was working with Haley Circus setting up to the point where they started this Amusement Mile thing. Um, he's working with Sonya Branch with the Amusement Mile. He's working, he's doing all of this stuff, and then what happens, the Joker basically eliminates the entire Amusement Mile slash circus in one fair swoop. Um, now, I understand that, you know, maybe the whole 17 issues was not, you know, the idea was, well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we really want to build this up. And then it was like, okay, maybe I want to go this, I want to do this in a different direction. And this Joker, to make it feel as if it has more of an effect on Dick Grayson, we're going to eliminate something that we've built for 17 issues. And that's a possibility too. But the way I perceived it was we're basically just erasing everything we've done over the last 17 issues so that we can have a fresh start starting on issue number 18 or 17 starting in issue number 17 next month. So to me, it's just, I, I don't know. It's, I didn't like this issue nearly as much. The, the characterization of Nightwing comes across as, um, very, very closely related to Batman, the animated series and not so much closely related to, um, Chuck Dixon's run or Devin Grayson, even though I would never want it to actually be related to that. (laughs) Um, but it doesn't feel as if it has it has very little to do with what's actually happening in or what has happened in Nightwing's comic book history. Um, I, I understand the idea of you know that Kyle Higgins wants to set this character apart from being the former Robin by defining him as Nightwing, and that's great. But I don't think that by everything that he's done up to this point has actually made me believe that. The problem is that I almost believe that because he is in Gotham City, because he is so closely associated with Batman, he just comes across as he's a former Robin who just changed his name so that he could, because he grew up, and he changed his name so someone else could take his spot. That's what it feels like to me. And I I mean, overall, I've I've praised Kyle Higgins' work, but the thing is, after hearing that interview on uh, Kevin Smith's podcast about what he's actually looking to do, it just doesn't fit with what he has done. Maybe that's what he wants to do, and maybe that's why he's leaving Gotham City in the next couple months and things like that, but that's not what we've seen up to this point. We saw him following the circus for, you know, the first, it was like six issues, first six issues of the series, and that was his extent of being outside of Gotham, but then he was constantly teaming up. He, he was teaming up with or appearing with 
uh, Batgirl or Batman or dealing with the events of what was ever whatever was happening in uh, Scott Snyder's run on Batman. It's just he's been so closely related to Batman that how can you define yourself as this great hero who is no longer working with others if all you're doing is working with others? So, I mean, I would love to see the character branch out on its own. You know, the thing is, I remember somebody at some point asked him in some interview, uh, what's the status of Bloodhaven? Is there any chance that he would go back to Bloodhaven? Um, and he basically said, um, as of right now, Bloodhaven is, you know, we, Bloodhaven doesn't exist or so, something, something on that regards. Or Bloodhaven's not around or is not a possibility. I don't remember exactly what his words are, and I don't want to sit here and quote something that I don't have in front of me. But he said something like, no, we're not looking to bring Bloodhaven back. Um, that's something that's in the past, and we're not bringing that back. And to me, it's just that was one of the greatest ways for the character to be out on his own is to not be in Gotham city, be close in case you know, you needed, you were needed, but you were not based in the city that Batman was based in. And I know this is changing because the solicitations for the next couple issues say that he's leaving Gotham city, you know, this, that, and the other, and that'll be great. But if he actually sets up shop outside of Gotham city, and he's working in a different city, that would be the most ideal situation to have him be more established as a single, by-himself hero compared to just being a sidekick to Batman. Because at this point, he's basically just a grown-up sidekick to Batman, and his name is Nightwing instead of Robin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't like... I think the difference is... I don't know if it's solely Kyle Higgins, but a lot of artists have really played up that aspect that... Here's the thing. This is where the continuity in the New 52... and in, in, in comparison to the old DC, really does have an effect, just like Batgirl, because Dick Grayson was was Robin, and then he was uh, leader of the Teen Titans while he was Robin. Then through the Teen Titans, he became Nightwing. He became Nightwing to help the Titans. It wasn't like you know he became Nightwing because part of the lols. Like he became Nightwing, partly for independence, but but you know he was ushered into because of the Titans. Then he then he uh, left the Titans, uh, moved to Bloodhaven after after opposing Batman for a little bit. Like, there were specific events in his history which, which built him up to the character people enjoyed as Nightwing. He was the Bloodhaven, the, the city of Bloodhaven, which was worse than Gotham. He was their hero. He was uh, the superhero for an entire city. So when you take all that away, you're not left with the same character. And when you're trying to sort of build a story around a character's iconography and he's not, he doesn't have the same history, then he isn't really the same character. I still enjoy Kyle Higgins' Nightwing uh, take overall, but I think that there is a lot of anime seriousness to him to the point where because that the anime series did lack a lot of the comic because the comic Nightwing and the anime series Nightwing are completely different takes. The anime series I enjoy, but I enjoy it for the series. The comic book version of Nightwing is a lot more. He's just he's just a lot more of a capable character. When he became Batman again after R.I.P., I don't. I mean, people always said that, you know they're copying Prodigal, but I don't think anybody questioned it because. He had no problems being Batman. He had no problems feeling the. I mean, he didn't like the cape and stuff, but like, he had no questions about himself or his capability to become Batman. He just did it because he knew he was he was the right person for the job. I don't see that same character in this comic book, and I'm, I don't want to come off as you know I hate this or whatever, but it's a very apparent to me in how easily the Joker tends to get to him. That there's a lot of emotion and. uh raw vulnerability, which I think Dick Grayson, we've seen for a long time now, sort of 
get beyond. I mean, Dick Grayson is an emotional character. You can, you can get him emotionally, but there's a certain there's a certain armor towards him that I think that is is a little bit too quickly exposed here. I mean, if, you, if oh, sorry, go ahead, ask the question. Well, I was just gonna say, if you don't accept it here, are you accepting how? how he gets to Barbara and how about the other people in the other books? Do you think it's just here that you're not accepting it because you like that character so much or is it across the board for you? That's actually a really uh, strong question. I mean, I think that Joker's methods to get to Nightwing actually work in terms of, you know, uh, methodology. But I think that Nightwing's sort of reaction to it is a bit too... Like, like overtly emotional. And I feel dishonest saying that because I think anybody in this situation would react as he is. But to me, Nightwing, Nightwing is almost too reactionary. He's not, he's not very anticipatory with, uh, going to fight the Joker. He's very like, you know, okay, the Joker killed Riot. I'm going after him. Oh no, the circus attacked. No, no, please, little girl, don't. And like, I think Nightwing would be a little bit more, uh, calculating than that. He's, you know, he was trained by Batman. There is a bit of Batman in him to where he can come sort of react to that. I think the Joker's attacks on Damien was really was worked really well because he attacked Damien's uh, uh, persona as you know the child Robin. I don't know what's going on with him and Batgirl, but I think that like with Damien it works. With Tim, I've, I've read uh, the issues with Tim and Jason, and uh, I think they might work for this this uh, this continuity it's Tim and Jason, but that's sort of a, a different topic. But like specifically for Nightwing, it's not so much what the Joker does; it's how Nightwing tends to react. And while I understand. I understand from a writing standpoint that you need Nightwing to react the way he is. It doesn't ring true for the character in how he does it. And that feels nitpicky to me, but honestly, I wouldn't say it if I didn't feel it were true. And I'm, this is, I mean, I'm not saying like I didn't enjoy this issue. I kind of like this issue. It wasn't as awesome as last issue, but my main, I mean, it's, it's, it's not so much like, that's, that's really the sort of like what I want to pose here is Nightwing acting like Nightwing. And, uh, I know how fanboyish that sounds, but at the same time, for God's sake, if someone doesn't say it, then nobody will. But uh, that's just, you know, that's just sort of how I take it. Well, I do. I am going <laughs> to say that I accepted a little bit that um, he is able to be taken down by the Joker. And I think the only way I can accept it is, is because I accepted the Batman and Robin way. Um, you know, we were questioning how does Damien not realize from you know, this guy that he's fighting, that it's not Bruce, either from just that he shouldn't have been as good of a fighter, he should probably have known his moveset and everything. And I think it just comes down to, number one, he's infected with the Joker serum. And yes, he was able to get his rebreather on, uh, but he still probably took in a little bit. And even Bruce, um, if he were to take in a little bit, like he can fight it a lot, probably more than anyone, but he's still going to be affected by it um, to a certain extent. So we've got the chemical uh stuff affecting him and then just where he is number one he lost jimmy raya you've got these dead people coming up from the ground and then it's also look at the setting it's there at the place this amusement mile this is he basically invested everything in there and it's almost like bruce trying to really um give back gotham city a a brighter and better gotham city and dick was trying to do the same thing but really start with the music mile and sort of go out and so here is sort of his quote-unquote kingdom and the joker is just like destroying it and with it goes you know his dream so he's just been 
psychologically, emotionally attacked. And I think that that's going to wear on someone no matter what. Plus, look at how long this all this stuff has been going on for. It's It's been affecting everyone just like Night of the Owls was affecting Bruce for days on end. And you saw how crazy he was getting in Batman. So, I mean, Dick is a strong character. And I, he is second to Batman for sure. And in normal circumstances, I think he'd be able to take on the Joker. But he has been beaten down just like Batman was beaten down throughout Nightfall by all those criminals running around. And then he gets to Bane and then Bane basically finishes the business. So I I definitely accept what you guys are saying. And I see that this is not, you know, the character we're used to. And, of course, hallelujah, hallelujah, at least people are saying that about another book. And it's, you know, you got my feelings with Batgirl. But I think that it's somewhat realistic because it's been happening elsewhere. So I just wonder if, if we can or cannot accept it in this book. Um, are we accepting it in other books or are we not accepting it? So I think almost you need to be consistent and like look at how the Joker is affecting other people and how they're able to react um, and either beat him or not. I think I think what your point is certainly fair. I think that I, it's, it's sort of, I want to repeat again. It's not so much what the Joker does. It's sort of how Dick repeats it. If I were to kind of sort of compare as a final point, it's like if the Joker was doing this as Superman and like a zombie, a zombie version, uh, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and, and uh, Perry White and Mom Pa Kent were running after him. And the Joker took out took down Superman that way. It's sort of like you understand how that can affect him, but you, you question whether or not he can sort of overcome it. And I suppose it's, your mileage may vary because it's like, you know, to me, it's sort of uh, uh, a, uh, a pre-organized ending where, you know, the sidekicks of Batman must be taken out and Nightwing is being treated as a psychic like everybody else. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to concede that it just might be a personal thing. I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this is the most wrong right wing's ever written. Isn't that right, Devin Grayson? But, um, uh, like I mentioned earlier that, uh, that Kyle Higgins has said freak, that he's very influenced by the animated series and how he approaches Dick Grayson. Um, he, he flat out admitted, which, which I knew anyway, that he, uh, had bitten a lot of, um, Robin's reckoning in the zero issue in terms of Dick, Dick Grayson's, uh, parents dying. And in this one, I noticed a lot of similarities with the Joker referring to him as bad fake. And even the scene where he, um, had, they said the, the, the whole idea of, uh, Jokerized versions of Dick's friends and family attacking him and then Joker stabbing him in the leg. I thought the anime series references, I, I always welcomed those because that's my wheelhouse, but at the same time, I'm wondering if that's a bit too intrusive. And we sort of talked about it before how this feels a little bit more akin to an animated series Nightwing than a, uh, a, an experienced comic book version of Nightwing. And I'm wondering if you guys have noticed that to the point where do you think it's a bit intrusive or does it not really bother you in, in Kyle Higgins' take on the character? I don't think that it, it bothers me that greatly. I think the, the, the thing that bothers me is that he's saying he's doing one thing, but he's doing, in my opinion, the opposite. That's what bothers me. You know, he, he thinks that he's making this character more defined as a comic book hero, but really he's just taking what we know from the animated series and adapting that and making the character more defined from that point of view. And I don't think, in my opinion, Nightwing didn't, like, I don't think Nightwing was done or was, was used that much during the animated series. Now, don't get me wrong, I know Nightwing was a character, but it was like the, the last, 
volume of Batman the Animated Series, if you broke it into four volumes like they released it, mm-hmm. where Nightwing yes. is actually Nightwing. So that's there was like 26 episodes total that the character was appearing as Nightwing out of... There's a six of them. Uh, yeah, there was like a total of, I think, 26 times four, so like 104 episodes, and a quarter of those had Nightwing actually as the character. A lot of those, a lot of those, those, those episodes didn't even have Nightwing in them. Nightwing wasn't prominent in every single episode. Not like Batman. So, I mean, to me, you're taking like, don't get me wrong, you, he's doing a great job of defining the character from what the character was in the animated series, but that's not what we should be doing because why are we taking a TV incarnation of a character who's been around for much longer than 20 years? and taking that and saying that that's the best interpretation to use for the character. Right. Unless, of course, we have editorial saying that that's what they wanted to do, just like they said they wanted Barbara Gordon back as Batgirl because she was the most recognizable form of the character. Well, I guess I just wonder, what are you saying as a connection to the animated well, series? What sort it's of sort of like, uh, like the whole, if I'm not, I sort of implied it, but basically a lot of this issue's plot is... Uh, kind of crib from Return of the Joker. Jokerizing uh, Nightwing's okay. friends to attack him and then stab him in the leg and calling him bat fake like he did Terry McGinnis. Not only that, but like, I mean, I think that in the way, and we've talked about it in, the, in my previous question, the way Nightwing sort of approaches it feels like a very animated... You know, I just thought about that episode. There was a Mad Hatter episode where like the, the circus attacks him. <laughs> Not to say that he's copying that verbatim, uh, but um, I don't know. It's It's like... I, I feel I I know how because Kyle, Kyle Higgins you know is our age, in in that like he he sort of shares the same influences and I know how much he enjoyed and is influenced by the anime series, and I'm wondering if that that influence it, to you Stella is uh, detrimental in how uh, how frequent it is or not. I do remember. I wonder if this happened before. Um, I wonder if it was Nightwing, but I remember you said, like, the script is, like, verbatim of a Batman the Animated Series episode. And I don't think it was involving Nightwing, but I do. Animal Act. Animal Act. Uh, Nightwing and Batman went up against the Mad Hatter who took over Haley's Circus. Oh, okay. Um, gee. I-, I guess I didn't see that connection um, as much as as you are. So I guess it did not affect me as much. So I guess okay. that's my answer. That's yeah. a simple question. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm coming off a lot harsher than I really mean to in this. I mean, it's just I think that I, I would hope that Nightwing, each character is different, and I hope that Nightwing will be a little tougher in terms of being taken down. Like every Bat family is, is basically taken down in two issues, and I kind of wanted Nightwing to be a, a, the one that is hard, the hardest to take down. Uh, like he was in Teen Titans, um, like uh, like I, I, I kind of wish he was being more like, written like he is in, uh, for instance, this issue of Batman Inc. that we're going to talk about, where he's he's different and he's a bit more uh, calmer and more control of a desperate situation. But then again, he is being attacked personally, so I don't know what it would be like if my family attacked me as dead zombies. So, but I mean, the one person who has to survive the longest has to be Batman. I suppose you're, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right in that. I suppose I was I was comparing Nightwing to Batgirl, Damian, Tim, and Jason. But yeah, well, he does. I mean, all of them are encountering this like weird stuff. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I, don't, 
I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can understand what you're going to say, but I, I don't think that the, the writer or the editors are not going to allow, like, one more issue for one of the the Bat family. They're, I think they're creating the Bat family equally right now, and Batman's sort of the top of that pier. So I think if they're going to they're gonna make everything equal, and Batman, Batman's got the last issue of this entire run, and I think that's how it's going to. That's how it's going to do. Go. Well, yeah, and I, I mentioned that too. Like, I, mean, I, I understand that it's probably like a preordained ending. It sucks though because I don't think I think if you're if uh, if I were writing this and I'm not I'm not writing this I, I shouldn't talk like this. But if I I would imagine that uh, the Joker can't just you know when, whenever he feels like it take down each member of the Bat family. But I suppose the point of the story is that he's darker and he specifically wants to do that. So I'm just going to shut up now. I'm writing myself to a hole. All right, so Nightwing number 16, I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batteries. Really? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'll give it, I, I like the art, I love the art, I really love the art. Um, I'll give it three out of five batteries. And I guess I'll be the most optimistic and give it four out of five. All right, and over on the website, Micah reviewed it and gave it a two and a half out of five batteries. And Joe rated it three and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give the issue a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batman Incorporated number seven. If you think I've been bad news before. Written by Grant Morrison, art by Chris Burnham. The issue starts off with Batman falling from the building after the explosion in the last issue. He falls to the ground um, as we see the... Uh, former Robins, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, and Dick Grayson watch his body fall from the sky, and a one of Talia's man-bat uh, guards grabs his body and carries him off. As they all are upset about this, Jason Todd and Dick Grayson start fighting over, and they say they need to uh, group. Re- re- we need to regroup because that's what Batman would want. After uh, after this happens, Nightwing basically says to Gordon, um, please take care of our men. We then see Tracked Kerr uh, calling Batwing and telling him about the belly of the whale. And as he is telling him about this, all of a sudden Talia's forces are coming to attack them. Batwing says, get out of there. They insist that they will stay and fight because it is their home. As... Uh, as they start walking out, uh, or as as we cut back to the scene at the base of the building, we see Batwing uh, talking to Gordon and Squire hugging Nightwing, basically really upset about the fact that the Knight is dead. Uh, we then see Gordon talking to Nightwing, telling him that there's a lot of things going on right now. We need to know what's what's going on, and. We're, we're spread out very thin, and we don't know what's going on. Nightwing proceeds to tell him that it is Talia al Ghul. Back at the Batcave, we see Damien working on the computer to find out exactly what his mother has planned. We see Tim Drake on a 60s-style bat cycle uh, driving around. Um, we also see in the Batcave uh, the cat Alfred, Batcow, and... Uh, what we either assume is Ace the Bat Hound or Titus all playing in the Batcave. After Alfred insists that that uh, Damien trains Alfred the cat to eat some food, um, 
He trains him very quickly, proceeds to tell him that he knows exactly what his mother has planned. Uh, when he left his mother's presence, his mother had another clone ready to replace him right away. He was born inside the belly of the whale, which is the whale we saw from the beginning of the issue. This, uh, this, this clone of his was designed to basically be able to take out anybody and everybody. And there was a whole line of designer super, pe super people that died because of his training. Um, back at the Batcave East, we see Jason Todd looking on the back computer trying to contact Damien and Alfred when the hood approaches and it says, says my first loyalty is to spiral as he uh, electrocutes Jason Todd or tases him. Back at a location where Talia is, she knows that they are going to be looking for her very shortly, so she pulls a box out of a safe, saying that it is the Ouroboro that we remember from way, way back when. Um, we then see that uh, the Damien clone has Batman's utility belt. We see Red Robin approaching the same location that they were in. As he walks in, he realizes that it is booby-trapped, and the building blows up as he tries to escape uh, with the explosion behind him. Uh, we then see Tim Drake calling Nightwing, telling him to get everyone to Wayne Tower, because Wayne Tower is, in fact, the main location of where everything is going to take place. Um, Nightwing and Gordon are standing there as a number of children emerge from a school bus with weapons chanting Leviathan. Um, Gordon insists that there's no way they could attack children, but they don't have any choice. We then cut to Wayne Tower, where one of the guards takes out another guard as a woman escapes as Leviathan takes over Wayne Tower. Damien's clone carries a safe um, to the top of Wayne Tower as Talia explains to everyone else that this building belongs to Leviathan, defend it with your lives. Um, we then hear a recording as we see that the safe that Damien's clone is carrying is in fact has Bruce Wayne chained up inside of it. Talia explains throughout this recording or or radio transmission that she knew she's been studying Batman for a very long period of time and she knows that he will be able to escape this death trap that she has set with him chained inside of a safe as the safe um, is thrown into a swimming pool. But because she has been studying him for so long, she knows exactly, exactly when he will die. And it will be just too late and he will not be able to escape in time. Back at the Batcave, Damien insists to Alfred that he knows exactly what his mother is up to. And he suits up, tells Alfred to basically explain to Bruce that he knocked him out so that he could he could escape. He gets into the Robin robot suit and shoots off towards his mother as we see a number of different situations across Gotham with the Leviathan children attacking Nightwing, Jason Todd being taken out by the hood, Red Robin coming to Wayne Tower, and Damien coming to what we could suppose is the rescue. Next up, Robin Patch with Blood. Alright, so, Batman Incorporated. This is not normally a book that I obviously do the recaps for, as you can probably tell, uh, because this book has got a lot going on, and in some cases, it's almost difficult to explain the large amount of events that are actually going on. 
So I'm going to stay very simple with uh, my topic points. The first thing I want to talk about is the art. What did you think of the art? We see, again, um, a couple different interpretations of some things that, to me, uh, is kind of kind of jostling to everything that happens in the normal continuity. Um, the first thing is we see Damien standing in front of the back computer, and is it just me, or does he look like he is only about six years old when he's standing in front of the back computer? Uh, you're probably right. Um, but I don't care. I love the art in this story. Chris Burnham, we were talking about Batman artists with Ethan Renskyver, and while I think that Burnham is an artist who wouldn't really change his style on another title, he's becoming one of my favorite Batman artists because he sort of captures... He sort of captures that weird quality that I was talking about with uh, the Dark Knight in that Gotham City, you know, it's, it's a dark city, there are, there are dark characters, but ultimately... There's a really weird psychological kink that going on that I think Burnham really does capture in his artwork. Even if the characters are not from Gotham City, like Batwing and uh, and um, Squire, they still sort of like uh, are enveloped by this this the whole situation because this feels like a Batman story to me. Uh, maybe it's because of the villains, maybe it's because of the characters involved, but uh, I thought the art wasn't very indicative of, of my uh, of how good I think this story is. I know Damien is a shrimp in this thing, but I like that. You know, as, I would rather him look really, really young as a 10-year-old than, I don't know if you, ever got, if you guys ever read, um, or if you ever saw, like, right before the New 52, there was Booster Gold uh, issues where he ran into Batman and Robin, where Damien is Robin. And Damien looked like he was at least 16 years old, <laughs> which was like, what? And it was drawn by Dan Jurgens. I was like, you know better than that. But, I mean, I like the big-headed Damien with, the, you know, like the shrimp. Uh, I, I mean, his head looks too big in some places. I'm not going to say he doesn't look cartoony, but I thought that... uh Overall, it all worked. I thought that the, I liked how he, I liked how he drew all the Robins. I liked how he drew um, Jason. I liked how he drew Tim. And some, a lot of them had a lot of close-ups. And I know I said it before, but I love his women. Talia looks like such a like femme fatale that it, that it works really well, and it fits really well with the writing. So I thought the art was good. I sounds like you you weren't as high on it, Dustin. So I'm interested to, see, to hear what you have to say. It's it's not so much that I don't like it. It's just I feel as if some some aspects of his art is disproportioned. Um, you mentioned the larger heads. That's that's part of it. I, I just don't understand why the heads in some cases are so large. Um, Damien's an excellent example of that. But at the same point, I do think that his art for females is great. You know, he's not over the top. You know, the the cheesecakeness that we see so often in so many of these books. He really makes Talia look like she is a force to be reckoned with, and I, yes. I really appreciate that because it's something we don't see hardly ever. We definitely don't see that in anything that's happening in Catwoman. So to me, it's just I wish that I I, I almost wish that I would get that same vibe from the, some of the other things. When he draws the children, the children to me, their heads are too large. Um, the scratchiness that his art is, which don't get me wrong, I I have. I, I like scratchy art in some cases, um, but at the same point, to me, it just doesn't come across very well when it's the children. Now that's not, and that's a rough thing to go to judge on because the problem is, you know, I like it in most of what he does, and he's not. It's not like he's drawing children every other page, and that's why he should change his art style. Um, that's not really the issue. So that's not. The, so I can't really complain about that so much. It's just. Damien is a very prominent character in this book, but for whatever reason, he just seems completely disproportioned 
not only in size of the head compared to the body, but also the size of his actual self compared to every other book that we see. He just seems like the shrimp, like you said. I, I don't personally like that. But for the most part, I do like his art. I just have small little, like, issues that are more personal that don't really affect the overall thoughts of the art. Well, I think you were mentioned, uh, Tyler, for one. I mean, I just, I just think that, like, women, women, people love evil women. <laughs> just, you know, that's, 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 that's a lot of, that's really attractive and really fun. That's why everybody likes still on this podcast. But also. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> she's evil. Valentine's is on the horizon. But, uh, in accordance to the children, I'm not going to argue. I think that Damien is absolutely disproportionate. I think that, uh, if this was an anatomy test, uh, Burnham would probably fail and fail badly. But I, I do think, uh, in certain comic books or certain, uh, commercial art, you can kind of get away with that if the art is appealing enough. So I'll, I'll agree with you that, like, the children look weird, but I think that they look weird in a way which doesn't, I don't think it's distractingly bad. But, uh, that's, that's just my take. So then the other aspect I want to talk about is clearly this series is ramping up to a, a, a very large finale. Um, we know that there's supposed to be only 12 issues to this series before Grant Morrison leaves. And we've talked about this before as far as, you know, what are our thoughts, but it, it almost seems as if this is ramping up to a finale even possibly sooner than five issues from now because issue 12 is still five months away. And, and, and just based off this one issue, I mean, last issue we had uh, The Night Be Killed, we had basically the entire Batman Incorporated team be either, you know, bloodied, battered, or dead. And really the only people who are left who aren't in that predicament are the main sidekicks of Batman. And even they are in a predicament right now where they're probably going to be bloodied and battered very soon. So the question is, where do you see this series going within the next five issues if Batman is locked up by Talia in this issue. Uh, we can assume that Robin is going to face his mother at some point in the, in this, in somewhere between this. But what do you think, how do you think this is going to play out in five more issues? I think that either Talia or Damien will either die or be taken off the table permanently. Um, I've seen a lot of conspiracy theories in the past day or two thinking that Damien might, may die. I've not really read them. I've seen people throw them out there. And um, I'm not really interested in, in, you know, kind of trying to figure that out because I don't think it's so much of a mystery as, you know, whether the Joker knows their identities or not. Um, although I hope if, if, if Damien is going to die, I hope that T- or Morrison has notified Tomasi about that because I think it'll be... Nor- Morrison's had problems communicating with DC to, to help other writers with their comic books. Um, they're certainly teasing that with the whole, you know, like, um, I must help, I must help my father. I'll tell him you overpowered me, sir. And he like goes out to save the day. And then it's just, next, a bloody R. It's just like, that actually reminds me of the trade paperback of Death in the Family where they showed like an R at the intro. Um, I, uh, Taya, this is, I mean, I've already said how much I enjoy her in, the, in this issue, in this story, but Morrison's run to me has always been about Damien. He introduced his, I mean, his run started with Damien. I believe his, the, the end of his very first issue began, started with Damien, I think. I don't know. I know it's definitely his first story. And, you know, whether Damien was a focus, focal point or not, like, like an RIP or whatever, like he was a constant. 
And because Morrison's ending his story, Damien has to play a big part. And he said, he, I, I'm, I know you know this is us, I'm not sure if someone knows this, but I remember him saying that he planned for Damien to die originally at the very end of Batman and Son. So, I mean, imagine how that would have gone down. I mean, if Damien had died, I mean, we probably would still had Tim as Robin. So, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I don't think Damien's a character who, like, innately has to be killed. I think he's he, he's a good character because he fits well. You You can... You're used to him being around the Batman universe. And honestly, I think we have enough dead Robins already. I like, I like Damien's role. Damien is different enough from all the other Robins that he's earned a place in Batman's history and doesn't demand to be taken out. Um, especially since uh, Batman 17 is, is, is threatening a big uh, surprise for that. So somebody might die. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, I mean, I wonder, I'm wondering if the Buddy R is a tease or if it's, or, you know, a bait and switch you know, trick, or if he will die. And I wouldn't have a problem either way, to be honest. I, I think Taya might die, but I don't, I'm not sure if that would... I'm not sure if Taya's death would have as much of an impact as Damien's death. Um, Joe's not here, but I remember him having an idea that Damien would, in fact, be the person to kill Talia. And <laughs> I was just very, I was upset by, by the thought of this, uh, because it certainly could happen. I really have no thoughts on whether Talia is going to die or not. I mean, something's gotta happen, and I think it's going to be big. My personal thoughts are that Damien's gotta, we've gotta get closer to the Batman 666 future somehow. And I think that this is gonna be the catalyst, um, to, to get Damien to somehow make the deal with the devil unless we, that, Number five, we've just suddenly gone away from that because Batman revealed to him that he was going to do something that would end it all. But I, I still feel like we're, we're making our way towards that future. Now, the reason I don't like Damien killing Talia off is because that is going to set in motion things that are going to irrever irrevocably change many, many characters' futures. Um, in The Walking Dead, spoiler for those of you that don't watch it or haven't yet seen it, Lori is pregnant and she goes into labor and she needs a C-section and she doesn't survive the C-section. But because all the humans have this, uh, the disease, once they die, even if they're not bitten, they'll come back to life and be zombies. So Carl, her son, ends up shooting her. Uh, in the head in order to prevent that from ever happening. And so now there's like this odd rift, obviously, between Rick, uh, the father, husband to Lori, and Carl. And then Carl is just really changed by it as well. And so I think if this happens, if Damien were to shoot his mother, he's sort of going against all of the growth that we've seen, really fighting against his nature and pulling back punches and not being a killer. And now there's just going to be this terrible rift, I think, between Batman and Robin. And Batman could potentially say, like, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. And it's just not going to be a good relationship anymore. And that would be really tragic because I love Batman and Robin and that growth that we've seen over the past 15 or so issues has been wonderful. And so if this happens, I think that Damien's character is forever changed. Batman and Robin's relationship is forever changed. So that's one thing. If Tali's going to die, that's one thing. But to have her die at the hand of her son would be really awful. And I hope that doesn't happen. So I 
I think that Damien's somehow going to get in contact with the devil because I just think we're going to go on that storyline somehow. I mean, why is it out there if we're not going to connect to it? Uh, but it, it's going to be big. I, I think that we can all agree on that because this is sort of Graham Morrison's swan song, I would say, um, and, and ending this this story with like a bad ending is not going to work. So I guess we'll see. All right, so Batman Incorporated, number seven, I'm going to give a total of four out of five batterings. Uh, I'm going to give this a five out of five. I, even, you know, I mean, even if not every part of, part of the story I understand, like Spider or whatever, I still, I think more than any other writer, possibly even more than Snyder, Morrison really gets these characters, and I really enjoy seeing them being written here. And it's so fun to watch. It's, it's so interesting. It's so engaging. It's funny. It's scary. It's it's entertaining. It's it's you know, it's thrilling, and the art's always or, or it's usually great. It's just this. This is, I mean, my enjoyment in reading this title keeps this out of five. And I'm not the biggest Grant Morrison fan. Uh, Final Crisis, I was like, say, what are you doing, sir? But I have to say that I've been enjoying this. It's been hard for me because even in this issue, I had those two weird characters, you know, scouting out. And I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. So, but this, I've been enjoying it so much so that I, it gives me a desire of, of checking back and, and actually reading the first volume. So, oh, 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 great, that's what you want. 4.5 out of 5 batterings. I thought it was great. I, I especially loved the ending. Yes, and Joe's rating for the issue was 4.5 out of 5 batterings. So it's going to give the issue a total of 4.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last issue, Batman and Robin, annual number one. You can't let your emotions get the best of you. Batman and Robin, annual number one. Batman Impossible. Dun, 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 dun. Writer, Peter J. Tomasi. Penciler, Artie and Seoff. Inker, Vicente Cifuentes. And colorist, John Cadiz. The issue begins with Batman fighting a golem-like machine. Hello, Batman Beyond. In the midst of a blaze and pulls a teen out screaming, Please don't tell my dad. He's going to kill me. Batman instructs the young man to tell the police everything. And please stop crying. That morning at Wayne Manor, Alfred wakes Bruce up to some unwanted sunlight, explains that it is afternoon, and to put on a suit that will be comfy for traveling. Yes, Bruce Wayne is Edward Cullen. Over the Atlantic Ocean, Bruce watches a video that Damien made, explaining that he is in London for a few hours ahead of him, wanting to do something that to show that he has been listening and learning, even when it appears that he is not. So Damien has done his research and put together a kind of scavenger hunt that will reconnect Bruce with the part of himself that he doesn't usually have time for. Alfred and Bruce will start in London, and there are clues that will lead them to various locations. Damien will always be one step ahead of them in the next city. Let's see if Bruce really is the world's greatest detective. We then see variously, uh, we then see various Batman and Robin, the movie-esque panels depicting someone suiting up, and it, but no crotch shot, luckily. And it happens to be Damien in a Batman cowl and a long trench cape in the Batcave. How did that happen? Well, until we find out about that, we shift scenes to a gas station where a detective is asking the owner questions about what happened. It appears all 800 gallons disappeared after a human-looking thing chewed the hoses off. The detective collects one of the nozzles and puts it into a bag and gets into her car where Damien, as Batman, but we shall call him Batboy for now, asks for the evidence. The detective is upset when she sees the nozzles already gone and yells at Damien. London. 
Bruce and Alfred check into Lanesboro and are greeted by Clinton Barrington, the general manager, <laughs> who seems both to know Alfred and say that this is Bruce's second visit. Alfred and Clinton catch up, talking about theatre and actors they worked with, while Bruce wants to know what Barrington meant about him being there again. At the end of the main hall, we see a painting of fruit, the small misplaced handprint. This was painted by Martha Wayne, and the handprint is, in fact, Bruce's. The Waynes stay there, and as Thomas was checking out, he paid a handsome sum to the owners, asking only that they always hang the painting prominently and care for it. After the passing, the, ba- uh, the painting was stored, and the agreement was forgotten until Damien brought up the agreement in a letter. Gotham. A villain dressed like Kronos from Justice League Unlimited and several underlings carrying different art pieces are running away from an art gallery with Bat Boy on his heels. Upset that he was interrupted from the other case. 17 seconds later, they are wrapped up. Later at the mansion, we see that Damien uses a green screen and video recording equipment in order to create a video that leads Bruce and Alfred on their way. He tells Titus that he hopes he will be finished with the case before his father gets home. In London, Bruce tells Alfred that he can go to Barcelona himself, while Alfred stay behind and catch up with some friend and lady friend. At the mansion, Damien sips wine in Bruce's robe, best panel ever for sure, waiting for the sun to go down. He races down into the back cave with Titus running excitedly after him. Damien has done a great deal of thinking awake and asleep, and he is looking for something with some sharp teeth. Teeth. An alarm goes off, which signals sundown, and Batboy races off in the Batmobile. He goes to work on several different perps before seeing the bat signal in the sky. The detective we saw in the beginning, her name is Pierce, and Gordon are there. Damien gives them a gift-wrapped bad guy to make up for the nozzle he took and stays in the glare of the signal so that those two can't see him. Apparently, the creature they are looking for has been seen before at gas stations. The only question is, why? Gordon wonders what is up with Batboy's voice and asks if he's Robin before Damien jumps off the building. hi yeah 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 In Barcelona. <laughs> 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 I, know, I can't do the Barcelona one. I'm sorry. I don't want to insult anyone. Bruce, uh... Because you haven't insulted anybody. I haven't! What do you mean? Only the lazy eyes. In Barcelona, Bruce interrupts <laughs> a game asking for help finding a particular statue. He gets the help he needs from a girl who Damien must have talked to, giving him the exact position he needs to stand in order to see where Martha and Thomas took a picture on their honeymoon. Damien is in front of the green screen again, talking to Bruce, who says that he is getting too good at keeping secret plans from Bruce. He has just left Greece, and Damien will meet him afterwards. Or he just has Greece left, and Damien will meet him afterwards. With only one night left as Batboy, he's going to make it count. We then see Batboy save a small child from an apartment blaze and looks at it a little closer uh, and sees the tanker truck which started the blaze. He finds a charred body still alive with shark teeth. Wah. Clearly, the person tearing the gas station... Poses. Damien is attacked from behind from a uh, fire from a golem, like we saw at the beginning. This happens to be the father of the Batman, of the kid Batman beat up. Batboy freezes the golem's works. The man begs for him not to tell his wife, and Batboy tells him to stop crying in a nice little ring composition. Detective Pierce gets Daddy wrapped up in a medical team over to Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And we find out that Daddy planned on selling the armor that he made to someone like Joker, the Joker, or Freeze, as Damien flies off the last time as Bat Boy, da-da-da-da, in Greece. Bruce does some pencil etching on a stone in front of the Parthenon, which says, Martha, will you marry me? Thomas. Somehow carved into ancient stone. 
Let's not talk about that. The guard offers to let him take the stone, but Bruce wants to uh, leave it where they left it those years ago. Later, Bruce talks with Damien on the phone, asking if he heard about the fires in Gotham. Damien feigns ignorance as he packs away his uniform and tells him he'll see him soon. <sighs> Seven hours later, Damien is in London and is caught off guard as Bruce tells him he knew all along that he was not in those cities. He trusts Damien, and Dick also used to take advantage of Bruce's business trips to patrol alone, and that the past three days were well worth being duped by his ten-year-old son. Epilogue, the old Globe Theatre. Bruce and Damien are awaiting backstage after a classics less boring, depending on what you ask, show of two gentlemen of Verona. Suddenly, Alfred bursts through the doors, exclaiming that that woman, Catherine, is an outrage, giving him notes mid-performance, and he doesn't ask much, but he demands to go back to Gotham. The issue ends on a starry night with Damien, Alfred, and his Shakespearean garb, and Bruce walking along the street. End scene. Um, my first question is, and it's frankly just because I loved it, is what did you overall think of this issue? And this is sort of something that we've not done in a while. So what are your thoughts in general of this particular annual? Um, my thoughts are those accents were took, just took me around the world. I don't know why you chose to say it in those accents, but um, <laughs> they were really distra- – oh, the issue. Okay. Um, I like the issue. No, I love the issue. I this is my favorite Batman and Robin thing ever, uh, that Peter Tomasi has done. It was such a nice break from like the emo bullcrap that he tenly. I should say bullcrap because I do like the title, but it was such a nice break from the angst that he typically just gives these two characters. And it was just a, it, it it was really a solid annual that felt like an annual. It didn't feel like a throwaway issue. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like uh you know just sort of a like a useless one and done. It felt like you know. A legitimate story that furthered the characters like the title is intended to. And um, I believe that we, we have the first appearance, you know, the first canonical appearance of um, of the Batboy. I mean, I guess Damien's Batman costume. You know, he's Batboy in this. And I thought it was great. I thought that just the art really complemented everything well with Artie and Seoff. He was a great artist for this title. I think that um, the characterization was spot on all over the board. And this is just like, you know... I, I had to reiterate myself. I think this is the best uh, Tomasi written issue of this title that, that we've seen yet. I thought I I love this. Uh, this was probably one of the best annuals that have actually been released since they started doing the annuals, because not only does it not necessarily have to do with what's going on in the normal book, but it, it's it's exactly what an annual should be. It is furthering the relationship of the character regardless of who the relationship is with or just furthering the character in general, but not being held down by what is happening in continuity. Uh, the perfect example of what an annual should not be is Batgirl Animal <laughs> number one. Because <laughs> yep. um, that was absolute horrible, horrible crap. But the, the because they tried to link so many different events of what was going on in the main series to that annual... It was just overpowering with un, unnecessary crap. This, on the other hand, was a perfect one-off story where it stands alone, it stands away from what is hap- has happened in the series, but still can build onto what has ha- what is happening in the series at the same time. And I say that because it's not as if you need to have read every other issue of Batman Robin in order to read this and get it. 
you don't have to read any Batman Robin to understand this issue at all. This is just a standalone story that works perfectly on its own. At the same point, if you have read every other Batman and Robin issue, it just adds to the relationship between Bruce and Damien and makes their relationship even that much more stronger as we've seen it grow throughout the series run. So this is exactly what an annual should be. And, you know, the funny thing is, I was thinking about this a while back. If you remember back when we reviewed the last couple issues of Nightwing before the New 52 happened, I went on and on about how horrible Peter Tomasi's writing was because he was focusing so much on the family element of Nightwing, Tim Drake, Damian Wayne, and Bruce Wayne. There was even that one issue where there was like a whole, oh, it's movie night, we're all going to watch a movie, let's make popcorn, who wants milk duds? And the (laughs) entire thing was so out of place, and I just thought it was the worst thing in the world. And we bashed it going on and on about how horrible it was because he was trying to push this family element that, yes, we understand that they are a family, they, you know, in some ways, you know, Either they're adopted by Bruce Wayne, or in the other aspect of it is that they're Bruce Wayne's sons, so they're all related in some way, and the, that issue was happening well after they hadn't been all together for a very long period of time. The problem was that it just did not, it was not, it did not make sense, and it did not, it did not fit, it did not flow correctly. That's, that's the phrase I'm looking for. It wasn't, it wasn't flowing correctly. It just felt as if they all had to be there, they were all forced to be in the rooms. Alfred locked the doors and said, watch a movie or you're not ever going to. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, honestly, look back at that issue at Nightwing and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you read that scene. It's it's really bad. But the, the thing is, Peter Tomasi, he knows how to do the family stuff. But in this regard, he's done it to a much better degree where he has actually created a meaningful relationship that works and has worked throughout the entire series, in my opinion. Yeah, there's been some moments where we've questioned what he's been doing, but for the most part, he, he's gotten the family aspect of Bruce and Damien down, down pat, and I appreciate that. And this entire issue is just like celebrating the fact that he has figured out exactly how to get these characters to work perfectly together without having to have them working in their costumes together. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I thought this was such an amazing issue, such an amazing annual. And I think, and I've said this before, annuals just have to tell a story that, I mean, it's gotta be special. It's gotta be worthwhile. And I think for once we certainly got it. And for, you know, those first six issues, I guess that first arc, you know, he had that, really rough relationship and I kept holding on and then it you know slow the nobody really pushed them towards each other and it's get, getting gotten better and better and now we have this which is sort of the pinnacle and I just loved it and this is why it's one of my favorite um non-romantic relationships in the TBU just because I thought it was so well done and I think in the beginning you got to wonder is Damien doing this for Bruce and and his reasons are not altruistic. You know, does he have these other goals and he does want to go off on his own and um, defend the city on his own? But just, I mean, you got to think about all the research he had to have done 
leading up to this. Uh, I don't think he did it plainly, you know, just to get get some time by himself. But all the research and really hitting key points, key moments in Martha and Thomas's life. You've got um, the actual engagement in Greece, their honeymoon in Barcelona, and then having Bruce, at least for a little while, in London and sort of going backwards and really hitting Bruce where um, he needs it and he feels it the most, you know, in his heart when it involves his his parents. And I think that it just shows how far these two have come, that Damien can understand him and relate to him in that way. And to have Bruce not go off the deep end when he realizes, you know, that Damien is lying to him. So it was just, it was such a wonderful issue. And what's great about it is that there's like, I mean, the action that's involved is very like side panel almost because that's really not the focus of what's going on. I think part of it is seeing Damien Damien in the cowl and and perhaps giving us a glimpse into what he would be like as Batman. But it's really about Bruce's journey and then Damien helping him out like that. And I think that's great that we can take a step back from action and Joker and like the violence and macabre nature of the pet books and have this. Um, what are your, so talking about, you know, Bruce leaving Gotham and really giving Damien um, an opportunity, though he didn't know it, uh, to do a patrol and, and have this mystery and solve it. Do you think that this particular annual opens up opportunities for Bruce to leave Gotham, giving Damien more chance to do solo patrols? Uh, so that's part, part one of that. And do you think that perhaps this book will, do you think we'll see Bruce leave a little more often and have Damien be the forefront of this book? Um, I mean, maybe not always, but do you think we'll have more issues like this where Damien's really taking a prime role in the Batman and Robin title? I don't think this issue necessarily uh, gives Bruce the idea that, you know, maybe I should leave or maybe it's time to to let Damien be more active. I think it's a step in that direction, but I think, if nothing else, Damien's age, no matter how skilled he is, does sort of preclude him to being being experienced enough to take on the entire city. Uh, I mean, the same thing happened with Dick Grayson. He, uh, you know, he was he was Batman's partner, but you know, once Dick got older, like seventeen or eighteen, he was like he could. Batman felt comfortable trusting the city in his hands for a little while. Uh, I'm not going to compare Tim Drake because if you read Robin's second miniseries, Joker's Wild, that was sort of a different situation. But I think with Damien, it's it's a step in that direction, but I don't think it's necessarily telling him that Damien can watch the city. Uh, yeah, but he's 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 heading there. I think that this does po- give basically it builds the trust that Damien has been looking for from Bruce for a long period of time. Now we've seen the trust being built throughout the series, but I think that this actually cements the fact that Bruce does trust him, and despite the fact that he knew he was being duped by Damien the entire time, he was understanding to the point that. You know, Damien wants to be able to go on patrol by himself and be able to prove, you know, make his father proud by being able to do things on his own. So I think that this the series in, as a whole has has basically been building that trust so Damien can do that, but this just cements it in so that basically Bruce is saying, listen, I trust you, I understand that, you know, this is a need that you want to do, and I, you know, wholeheartedly understand it and... I think that you can handle it. So I think it does give the opportunity for Damien to do, go on solo patrols in the future without Bruce saying, sit at the Batcave and sit on the computer, since that's what we see yeah. in so many of the other books. Um, I don't think that this necessarily 
automatically de- designates Damien for a candidate for a solo book, because I think that the character works much better when he's working with somebody than if I was just watching him on his own. If we compare uh, pre-New 52 with uh, his interactions with Stephanie Brown as Batgirl, those were great issues. We compare his interactions with Dick Grayson during the entire run when he when Dick was Batman and even after Dick was Batman, those were great. Even the Batman and Robin issue where he encounters Jason Todd and Tim Drake, you know, his relationship with Tim Drake hasn't been the best basically because he replaced Tim Drake as Robin or Red Robin or whatever. I, I just still don't understand the explanation behind all of that. But <laughs> because if, and this is going to be a tangent, but if Tim Drake didn't take the name of Robin because it was in honor of Jason Todd, then why does Damien have the name of Don't Robin even get me started. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I was just thinking about that. But anyway, he he interacts well with other characters. And honestly, the character by himself is not nearly as interesting if he's not dealing with other characters. Now, obviously, if he was a solo book, he could have his own villains and he could be dealing with other characters and someone could build his own supporting cast. But I think that he works better when he's consistently around somebody else. And this book, it works well because he's always dealing with Bruce Wayne and Batman, and I think that works well. I don't want to necessarily see him in a solo book right at this point, but I think that the possibility is there for him to be on solo patrols and to see this book deal with him on his own, more so than just whenever Batman is dealing with an event like we've seen. Okay. My final question is about Detective Pierce that we're introduced to. And I just, whenever someone is introduced, except for Gregor in uh, Batgirl, because that led to nothing, um, I always feel like there's there's got to be some reason to do, uh, <laughs> to introduce this person. So what are your thoughts on the character? Uh, I mean, not much is given, but do you think we'll see her again? I hope not. I think I, I took your, her as a bit more, and it's not really the character's fault, I suppose, but... I feel that with uh, her character and the in the and the woman in Talon and McKenna and Batgirl, there's a lot of these sort of like tough female cop characters, and I think there's just a little bit too much of the same kind of trope or too much of the same character archetype that I wish it w- she were a bit different. Or if if she's going to appear again, I wish I wish she would be different than just sort of like you know the angry cop. Uh, if she's going to be like if, if she's going to be like we are, we see her in this issue, I'd rather not see much more of her. I guess we just, I feel like there's just a void in DC Comics right now. And the void ha- has been created by the absence of uh, Renee Montoya. And so every cop they, cre- they create is like, I see Renee Montoya in you. Um, and I just wonder if we're, they're like trying to get back to that, but just like a piece at a time. Um, I actually will admit, though, that Detective Pierce, even though she was like this angry person and yelling at it back here, which we've always seen that, she did. I, I was uh, taken by her a little more, or taken with her a little more than at least Detective McKenna in her first appearance. So, I mean, that's a positive check in her column. All right. So, Batman and Robin Annual Number One. I am going to give a total of four and a half out of five batterings. I'm giving this another five. Five out of five batterings. Yeah, I thought it was wonderful. If you buy one comic all year, uh, I, I think it should be this one. All right, and then Joe gave the issue a total of four and a half out of five batterings, and over on the website, Melinda gave it four out of five batterings as well. 
So this issue is going to get a total of four and a half out of five batarangs. That is all of our books. Let's throw it to John with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to another episode of Back Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we are reviewing Batman Cataclysm. This was a massive crossover storyline that ran through all the Batman books. It was written by Alan Grant, Chuck Dixon, Doug Monash, Dennis O'Neill, Devin Grayson, Chris Riand, Rick Burchitz, Klaus Janssen, and Kelly Puckett. And it features art by Mark Buckingham, Scott Daniel, Klaus Janssen, Roger Robinson, Graham Nolan, Jim Ballant, Staz Johnson, Stan Wok, Jim Apro, Marcus Martin, Alex Malev, Rick Burchis, Eduardo Barato, and David Taylor. This ran through Shadow of the Bat 73, Nightwing 19, Batman 553, Asriel 40, Detective Comics 720, Catwoman 56, Robin 52, Blackgate number 1, Shadow of the Bat 74, Batman Chronicle number 12, Nightwing number 20, Batman 554, Huntress and Spoiler number 1, Detective 721, Catwoman 57, Arkham Asylum number 1, and Robin 53. This has been released in trade paperback form, however it does not contain the Huntress spoiler storyline nor Arkham Asylum, although it can be bought very cheaply on eBay and Amazon for between 5 to $10, or alternatively you can pick up a lot of the issues as separate items for a couple of dollars each. So, because this runs to 17 issues, I'm not going to give an in-depth description as per usual. Rather, what I'm going to give is a brief overview of each issue. It's going to make it a bit easier, and it's going to keep this edition of Batbox for beginners under 20 minutes. So, is it any good? Or will there be an earthquake as I throw these comics across the room? Let's find out as we dig into Batman Cataclysm. The first three issues, Shadow of the Bat, Nightwing and Batman, really pretty much deal with the earthquake itself, as well as the heroes rescuing various people, including Alfred. And Barbara starts to organise the police force in the absence of her father. Whilst Asriel deals with him returning Bane and Bane's escape after the earthquake. Detective Comics tells three stories of Huntress rescuing people from the subway, Renee Montoya rescuing people, and Batman becoming trapped underwater. Whilst in Catwoman, Selina has become trapped in a shopping centre and has to comfort a dying child. Robin 52 has absolutely nothing to do with Cataclysm, except for the last panel where he returns to Gotham. Blackgate tells the story of a man on death row being comforted by a lawyer and a nun. When the earthquake hits, they have to escape the prison whilst avoiding the inmates. 
Shadow of the Bat 74 tells the story of Tim getting into Gotham from Bloodhaven, Batman rescuing trapped people in the rubble, and the kidnapping of an earthquake specialist by persons unknown. Batman Chronicle tells six stories in The Contract. We see Batman has hired anyone available to help rescue people. House of Cards tells the story of Raz al Ghul gloating over Gotham's demise. A bird with a hand has a mysterious figure rescuing people in return for favours. Trapped is the tale of a man needing rescue but being missed by Robin. In Love Me Two Times, Two-Face appears to be dead, but after the cops turn out to be corrupt and want to sell his body, Two-Face turns the tables and traps the police. And the final story, Little Orphan Andy tells the tale of a small child called Andy being rescued. Nightwing number 20 is the story of Tim finding his parents and Dick rescuing Alfred and Harold, while the Quake Master claims to be the villain behind the earthquake. Batman 554 is the story of Batman investigating the Quake Master's claims and hunting for the seismologist. Huntress and Spoiler sees the two team up deal with the escapees from Blackgate Prison, including Stephanie's father, the Clue Master. In Detective Comics 721, Batman, Nightwing and Huntress save some more people whilst Robin solves the mystery of who the Quake Master is and where to find him. Catwoman 57 sees Catwoman take on Poison Ivy, who is trying to rebuild Gotham as a haven for plants. Arkham Asylum number one has the inmates of Arkham escaping, naturally, and torturing a guard. Whilst Robin 53 includes Cataclysm, with Tim revealing that Quakemaster is in fact Scarface and Fred Twilliquist, and they have been trying to extort money from Gotham, who he defeats. So that's just a very brief overview of what happens in the storylines. If you want to know more details, then you can either look at Comic Vine, which gives an in-depth description of what's going on, or I recommend you go out and buy the issues yourself. So, on to the good points. I thought a lot of the artwork was very good, aside, obviously, from Jim Ballant, who's proving once again that he can't draw women. I would challenge anyone to stand in the poses that he draws those women on without fracturing your spine. And I felt Gotham felt very wrecked and ruined and destroyed. And it was very interesting and very dynamic and very nice to look at. Artistically, this is probably one of the best comics I've ever seen. Now, on to the bad issues. And the bad issues really very much outweigh the good issues on this. For a start, it's 15 issues too long. It really feels like it's dragging its heels. The first four issues, not really very much happens. And we then descend into the final parts with what really feels a very much tacked on villain. And I think that's probably partly down to bad plotting as well. The Quake Master feels like he's been introduced about halfway through because they all sat down and went, uh, who's the villain in this? Do we have an idea who the villain is? Is there going to be a villain? Or is it going to be 15 issues of them rescuing people? And this really could have been done in two issues. And it would have been interesting and different to see. It would have not been a villain story. It would have been them trying to cope with a natural disaster. My other problem was stories such as Blackgate or Arkham Asylum are very much unnecessary. I didn't feel that they added anything to the storylines, and they don't. That's their major issue. 
These are side stories. They're distractions from the main plot, and they could have really done without. For example, the story of Blackgate tries to make some kind of deep, meaningful point. For example, the nun at the end goes, well, he might have been lying, or he might not have been lying. Yeah, but I don't really care. That was my problem. I honestly didn't care that he died, because it didn't add anything to the story. I didn't feel that there was any kind of great moral output point here that I should really understand and really connect with. In fact, I felt that through the entire series of issues. I just got to the stage of the plot where I kind of went, mm, I don't really care anymore. This is starting to get very, very boring. Worst, some of the stories didn't even really appear to have anything to do with Cataclysm. Robin, issue 52, pretty much wraps up his story with Ariana and his journeys in Russia. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Cataclysm, except for the very last panel, which is a great picture of Gotham destroyed from the air. And that looks amazing! But it's nothing really to do with Cataclysm. It's not added to the storyline. You've only shoehorned the fact that it has Cataclysm in there because of the last panel. And it was a really, really bad choice because it's nobody cares. People who wanted to read the Robin storyline would pick up the Robin storyline anyway. There's no point in having the conclusion to it storyline because new readers if you're trying to attract them using this system aren't going to really understand what's going on and that's a problem my final two points are pretty much interlinked and i understand the comics require a suspension of disbelief there is a requirement for that let's face it we all know that this isn't real but there's a point where my suspension of disbelief comes back and it just goes no, I'm sorry, we can't carry on anymore. This is stupid. And that was my problem. The Quake Master. This is pushing science to its limits. An earthquake machine. Really? You expect me to believe that? Nobody can create an earthquake machine. It's almost impossible. If science could do it, we'd have probably done it by now. Let's face it. The thing that you have to understand about earthquakes is that they are small points along the earth where the crusts the edges of two tectonic plates rub together and they rub together and they obviously create an earthquake the ground shakes because they're coming up in collision with each other and that's almost impossible to recreate using technology and it was at that point I just went this just this is silly this is 1990s comics at its worst. Ultimately, it's silly, it's stupid, it's ridiculous. And that's fine. I like silly and stupid and ridiculous issues occasionally. Some of them can be very entertaining when they're done well. But this, I just thought, really, you've created a massive crossover for a really stupid ending. And nobody seemed to question the storyline in it. Nobody seemed to go, hold on a minute, I'm pretty certain that that's impossible. Jim Gordon even turns to another seismologist and goes, what do you think, Mrs. Seismologist? I can't remember the name. And her reply is, well, I'm not too sure, but it seems pretty legit. I'm going, at that point, to be honest, I'd find myself a new seismologist, because that one's clearly an idiot. And this final point is pretty much linked to that. Is Gotham on a fault line or not? Because it seems to vary on which comic you read. 
At one point, Bruce Wayne is mocked for installing things, earthquake protection, into his buildings because Gotham's not on a fault line. And yet a couple of issues later, we find out that Gotham is indeed on a fault line, in which case the people who didn't install the earthquake protection are in fact idiots. And I don't know which one I'm supposed to believe, which one I'm supposed to follow. If Gotham isn't on a fault line, then there should be no earthquake protection. There will be no earthquakes. But if Gotham is on a fault line, then I'm pretty certain that the people of Gotham would know that it was on a fault line and therefore would have to install earthquake protection. It's a legal standard thing. San Francisco, if you're building a new building, you have to install it. In Japan, you have to install it because they're on fault lines. They know that they're going to get an earthquake. But this just seems to either want to say Bruce Wayne is a genius or Bruce Wayne is prepared for everything. And he can't be both. He has to be prepared for one or the other. And it has to make clear what on earth is going on and why it's happening. And frankly, this comic doesn't do that. This comic is a huge letdown. I was really disappointed. I was looking forward to this because I've read No Man's Land and I've finished it and I've read Aftershock and I wanted to see what was going on before that. And ultimately, this is just silly. It's stupid, but not in a good way. So, overall, I'm going to give this two out of five batarangs and it's only getting two out of five batarangs because I think the art in a lot of places, is particularly brilliant. So that's my review of Batman Cataclysm. Next issue, we're looking at Batman Aftershocks. So thanks once again for listening, and now I'm going to hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. So that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the next set of books for the next issue. And if you haven't been paying attention or have been fast-forwarding through Bat you. Books for Beginners for some odd forsaken reason, um, you may have realized that, or you may not have realized that we are approaching Batman No Man's Land and we are going to be spending a significant amount of time covering every single issue of Batman No Man's Land um, John has covered Contagion, and he is covering After and Catechism, and now he is covering Aftershock. Um, but No Man's Land is right around the corner, and because that event took place in about 187 different issues of Batman, as well as a total actual real-life time frame of about four years, we're going to be spending a good chunk of time on No Man's Land, making sure to cover all of the books, not just the ones that DC has collected inside of the trade paperbacks. So, if you are like me and absolutely love No Man's Land, be sure to check out uh, Bat Books for Beginners, not only here on the Comic Cast, but also in its own feed on the website. Subscribe to that as well. So with that, um, we're going to bring up our new segment, which we're really just going to announce on this episode, and the next episode will actually start it. So, um, we are planning on doing... DCU Spotlight, um, we're going to, we're planning on trying to do that every single episode now that we've gotten down to just about four books per episode with the 0.5 episode. 
So with the .5 episode taking over a large chunk of the excess books that don't necessarily follow the normal continuity or the same exact storyline of what is what is normally happening in the books we've been covering, we are um, planning on doing a DCU Spotlight every single episode where we, we suggest a book from the past two weeks that we are reviewing the comics from for you to check out. But in addition to that, we're also looking to start a listener Q&A section. Now, this is something that we've been, we've brought back on the normal cast, and it's something that I think could be something very good here on the comic cast as well. So for the future, if you are listening to this episode, generally from the time that this episode releases on the website, you have roughly about one week to get your review, get your questions about the episode posted on the website at the comment section of the actual episode post, or you can email us at podcast at thebemauniverse.net with your questions, comments, or concerns about the previous episode, or just in general questions about things that are happening in the Batman universe as far as the comics go. And then we will be, in turn, going through those questions every single episode. Obviously, the segment only is successful if you, the listeners, actually send over questions, but because... We have done discussions in the past, and because we have actually lacked in the amount of discussions in the past, we want to actually start bringing back some of those discussions based off of what you, the listeners, would like to hear us talk about. So be sure that if you are listening to this podcast, uh, you check the date that it came out, and roughly within a week of it, that's roughly around the time that we are about to record the next episode that is how much time you have to get your questions in. So if you're not listening to the podcast right away, maybe this will prompt you to listen to it right away so you can get your questions answered on the next podcast. We do have a significant amount of people who have been commenting on the podcast as they post, and we have been getting some emails and tweets and comments on Facebook, but we want to get tenfold of what we have been getting so we can have longer discussions because we have chop the number of books down and spread it out a little bit more evenly throughout the three different comic cast episodes that we have been doing now. So with that, I'm going to just tell you about a couple of the different things that have been happening in the Batman universe. There's a ton of stuff that has happened if you haven't been paying attention to the website. We have added a brand new comic, uh, brand new podcast that is directly related to the comics to our podcast lineup. It is called The Batman Universe Taking Flight. It is an episode where a new host by the name of Tom, he is looking at the history of the Robins, starting with Dick Grayson. He has about 14 episodes, and he is currently right in the middle of Tim Drake becoming Robin. And he's he's planning on continuing the series past the actual history aspect of it once he actually gets through the entire history of the character. But obviously... As we all know, the history of Robbins, there is a lot of information that he's going to be covering, so be sure to check that out. In addition to that, we also have a new special that has posted up on the website related to Valentine's Day. That episode is actually posting the same day that this episode is posting, so it is on the website as we speak. It is, in fact... A shipper spotlight, and I'll let Stella explain what that is. <laughs> what shipper spotlight is, <laughs> friends? 
you need to prepare yourself for a trip through shippers that you have never experienced before in your life. <laughs> but uh, no, but seriously, I, I really wanted to visit all of the shippers, both romantic and non-romantic. So if they're team-related or fam- uh, familial, meaning like Batman and Robin, that have occurred through this past year. And I was just struck by how many there were and really talking about fleshing out whether they're worthwhile um, why some of these girls sort of flit in and out of Batman's life, and could we compare them with some of the the old Fifty Two stuff, and and how have they grown or not grown? And so I, Dustin, Donovan, Melinda, John, and Ed, we all get together and we talk. And I mean, if you're like if you're scoffing right now at at, <laughs> at shippers, and how can we? possibly come up with a conversation about it i actually and i mean i'm biased here but i actually thought that a really good conversation came out of it um and of course we all i think had the same favorites and everything so you know if you're in the mood for something special on valentine's day then please check that out even myself the grinch that i am (laughs) i participated in it and um i i honestly think that it was a worthwhile episode otherwise it wouldn't be making it out to the public (laughs) So, with that being said, be sure to check that out. We also have released the commentary for The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, Batman The Dark Knight Returns Part 2 is released, so we'll be releasing commentary within the month for that uh, animated film as well. We have all kinds of stuff that we're also planning. We still have new episodes of Batgirl Oracle. We still have new episodes of the Batfans podcast. There's new episodes of the Normal Cast. Yes, that's right. The Normal Cast has returned from his its long long Young Justice hiatus, um, so you can check out the normal cast as well. And in addition to that, we have added a number of different staff members to the actual website to get more news and more editorials posted, so be sure to check that out. And lastly, of course, as I mentioned before, we have the new .5 episode for the comic cast, which will cover about a total of seven to nine different books, depending on which books we're actually covering month to month, um, depending on how tied they are into the actual Batman universe. But most of the books that we have recorded in the past, in addition to Teen Titans, we will be covering on that podcast that we are no longer covering on this one. So be sure to check that out. I welcome two new co-hosts alongside me, and we review those books. And we are going to be talking about some of the news items that are relating to those specific books Mostly the solicitations and things like that and things that are changing and announcements that are related to those books. So if you are a strict continuity fan and you want to stick to nothing but uh, the Batman books, definitely stick with this. But if you want to know all of everything that's list- that's happening in the Batman universe, pop- Batman universe comic world, be sure to also listen to the Point Five episode as you'll listen to a lot of the other allies of Batman as well. So with that, that is everything for this episode. Be sure to check out the website for all the latest news and editorials from the Batman Universe. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. Leave your comments in the comments section for this podcast episode. And, of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. And if you need even more love this Valentine's Day, then head over to Batgirl to Oracle where you can hear Donovan and I break apart something called Robotech, which uh, 
Some of you may know, some of you may not know, but there's craziness and fun involved. So definitely a bunch of Valentine's Day stuff that you can listen to. This is Stella. Do it now. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Ship on, ship on, ship on. Stella, I was listening to the five-year special, and you mentioned something about Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, yeah, my whole point was if guys can read Fifty Shades of Grey, then girls can definitely read comics. Huh. Fifty Shades of Grey. Hmm.